and we're live. Hey, welcome everybody. <laughs> welcome we to Theology job. Thursday. Kevin has one button he has to push. One button. <laughs> but it's all right. It gave me an opportunity to say, and we're live the way like real podcasters do. Kevin, um, you want to pop on and defend yourself or apologize, whichever you choose? Oh, man. <laughs> he has to find the button. You know, it's funny. We, um, we're still talking about the end of the world. It's the last week of the apocalyptic series. We're going to talk about the book of Revelation. And so it feels so appropriate that we're back to black skies, red sun, red suns. Yep. And, you know, the kind gloom of and gloom. We had a week where that feel, at least outside in nature, was gone. Yeah, and then it's, yeah. the wind shifted and it's back. So, yeah, good night to be talking about the end of the world. Hope everybody's doing good. Um, we, Jill Dowler, Taya Britt, Alice Chase, Ellen hello, Waddell. Hello, hello. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. Now, we, we are our friend, the Obsessive Gardener. Yeah, where's the Obsessive Gardener, man? Where are you at? Obsessive Gardener, we hope you're here. Um, we, we specifically want to invite ourselves. Hey, Robert and Ruth, we want to invite ourselves to your garden. Um, that's, we want to eat some hot peppers. We, we, this is a, I mean, schedules permitting. This is a real thing. Obsessive Gardener, we, we looked at your YouTube channel. And clearly, you you grow really hot peppers. He got the garden game on lockdown. It's for real. It's for real. And specifically, it's like a spicy peppers thing, which we all, the three of us in the room, me, Isaac, and Kevin, we love some spicy peppers. So mm-hmm. we'll come. Maybe we'll even bring a camera. Maybe and, we'll... And make Kevin eat really hot peppers on camera. Yeah. Me and Isaac will set it up ahead of time so that the obsessive gardener gives us bell peppers bell peppers that look like the other stuff like dude Kevin, and then while weak, kevin's man. crying we'll be like this is why you're behind the camera man. not in front of it can't handle the peppers <laughs> man so yeah um hopefully guys let us know in the comments um if you've got questions from tonight or just from the rest of the series hope depending on how fast everything goes we might be able to get some of that stuff at the end um and yeah other than that let's jump into it you ready okay all right, so, so far we've talked, in week one, we talked about the millennium, then we talked about false prophets, false prophecy, doomsday prophecy in general, um, and then last week we talked about the rapture, and tonight we're going to kind of finish with what in some ways should be the thing we start with, which is kind of the ground level issue when it comes to how Christians understand the end of the world, and that is, how do you read the book of Revelation? So, before we do that, we want to do what we've been doing and show some memes that kind of mm-hmm. show you know, to some extent, how not to read the book of Revelation. Here's one we showed in week one. This says, me looking outside to see what chapter of Revelation we're doing today. Now, obviously, this is a joke, um, and it's a funny one. I've seen this one posted a bunch of times. But it does get at the heart of what we're going to talk about tonight, which is like, is is that how you read Revelation? Like, to see, okay, what's going to happen? And, you know, once the apocalypse starts, this is sort of your, your walkthrough roadmap of how it all goes. Throw up that next one, Kevin. For those of you who are fans of the Emperor's New Groove, this one says, guys obsessed with revelation theories when literally any major world event happens. And then Kronk from Emperor's New Groove says, oh yeah, it's all coming together. Hopefully there's some fans of the Emperor's New Groove on here. Isaac has never seen it, Mm-mm. which is a sign of the end times in my opinion. Um, it's, it's, it is, it's a great cartoon. And okay, you want to, so this one is another example, kind of like the last one of, of a very common thing, which is, if you're the type of person who is into predicting the end of the world, man, anything happens on an international scale and you go, this is what the book of Revelation is talking about. 
And it's actually kind of what prompted um, this entire series yeah. to some extent is that when the world gets crazy, like it has in 2020, um, everybody starts to go, well, this has to be, you know, how the, how Revelation described it. There's famines, there's plagues, et cetera. All right, you want to throw up the next one? This one you can't see and we don't actually have to look at it, but I'll describe it to you and you, so you get the idea. There's a ton out there that are like this. Um, this is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And what someone has done is typed major world events that correspond to the roles of the four horsemen, war, famine, death, plague. I probably ought to know that. Well, what I was going to say is you said someone, someone tied something to Kobe Bryant's death. Yes. So one of the ones that I found, it's not the one that's up there, but one of them on the, the pale horse, the death horse, mm-hmm. put that the world event that happened was Kobe Bryant dying. And, they, and it wasn't a joke. And, and it's one of those, it, you know, it's, it's an example of kind of like, obviously th- that's a horrible tragedy, the death of Kobe yeah. Bryant, but how can one person dying be a, si- a signal of the apocalypse? People are dying yeah. all over the world every single day. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a big Laker fan, but you know, come on. It's like, it's probably not Kobe in revelation. It's probably not what it's about. I was going to say, actually. It felt like it might be a bridge too far, but if anyone in the room would see that as a sign of the apocalypse, it would be you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a good argument to be made, but it's, it's <laughs> that's not the case. So that's a great one. You want to jump to the next one? And again, same, same kind of thing. All of these are making the same point, which is that people look at the world and say, okay, well, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Death, war, famine, plague, they're all happening. And this is another one that you don't have to read to get the point of if you can't see it. It's a series of tweets that just um, all of them are mapping specific chapters of the book of Revelation onto world events and saying, hey, this alliance happening in the Middle East is this chapter of Revelation and on and on. And it's they're kind of like it's replies to an initial tweet that get more and more crazy detailed. Um, And I'm not putting these up to poke fun at the kind of this way of reading revelation, but just to point out um, that many of us in the evangelical world, American Christians tend to read revelation that way by default without ever having thought about it. Right. Yeah. That's kind of a theme of this whole series. 90, as we said last week or the week before where like the vast majority of evangelicals have been raised or saturated in a kind of premillennial dispensationalist rapture theology Likewise, the book of Revelation has been read through a grid that is probably representative of about 90%. And in reality, it's not the only grid to read the book through. Yeah. And our thing, like it's been with everything else, is that it's, it's not to say that that grid is automatically incorrect or that you shouldn't read it that way, but just to say that it's not the only one and having your way of reading the book be unexamined is a problem. We want to get you thinking differently and thinking at alternatives so that if you remain in the same camp, you're remaining in the same camp for the right reasons rather than just, well, that's what I've always believed. Yeah. And on purpose. So this is for you. If you're one of the types of people like me um, until, you know, adulthood and, and really studying theology on my own, that kind of defaults to being scared of the book of revelation that you open it and you're like, Oh man, this is like, this is the creepy book that talks about all the crazy stuff that's going to happen at the end of time. And the truth is, as we're about to go through, there are ways of reading it that say this is all in the future. Some that say it's half and half and some that say most of this already happened. Um, So the first thing we're going to do is kind of get 
a little bit technical and a little bit nerdy and like drill into um, the schools of interpretation for revelation. And there's a lot, but there are four kind of primary ones that we're going to look at. Um, And again, as we walk through this stuff, just have an open mind and know that um, versions of all four of these are acceptable and valid within mainstream Christianity. And there's a really good chance that they'll be super surprising to a lot of you that you've never, you've never heard anyone talk about it this way. Um, but no, like everything else we've talked about, tons and tons of people think all of these. Um, and the, your school of interpretation that you take has a huge impact on all the other stuff we've talked about already, mm-hmm. like your millennial view and a bunch of other stuff about your eschatological um, opinions and positions. Now, all of these views have to do with the sequence of visions and how they relate to each other and how they relate to history, right? So it's kind of like a when does this happen relative to the timeline of human history and relative to the rest of the book? Um, so the first one, and I think we have a slide, Kevin, that just has the names of all, you don't have to leave it up the whole time, but just so people can see them all at once. Um, there's, there's historicism, futurism, preterism, and idealism. And we'll, we'll go pretty quick here. So, um, you know, don't feel like you have to memorize these and their definitions, but just to get an idea of the range. Historicism, um, it says that the literary order of the visions is symbolizing a chronological ordering of the events that started in the first century at the time of the apostles Mm -hmm. and that will culminate in the future. But it includes like the broad sweep of history. So like as you're going through the chapters, this could be 900 AD, this could be 1200 AD, this could be 1600 AD or whatever, but it's a big giant timeline. Yeah. So some of it's still in the future. A lot of it's in the past, um, but it has this very broad view. So you're like, and depending on the historicist that you read, some of them get like way specific on, you know, this is the reformation. Yes. This is, you know, the Roman empire under Constantine. Yeah. The, and, and now here's, here's a question in for the chat. How many of you in the chat have never heard of that view or considered it? Yeah, either by, either by title or just av- even having it described. That there are people who believe, scholars who believe, that parts of the middle of the book of Revelation are about things like the Reformation. Yeah, because I would say a big chunk of Christians have never been exposed to that view. Yeah, I would, I would guess that you're right. And the next view we're going to talk about is the one that is probably the most familiar to the most people, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Which is futurism. futurism. Yeah. And futurism is interesting because it's... Uh, it's similar in a sense that it's, oh, Ellen says she's heard of it. That's awesome. Um, she's a smarter than average lady, I got to say. Mm-hmm. Um, now, futurism is very similar in, in terms of, oh, wait, was the question that- It's a they, little tricky the way we worded the now question. Now I forgot. We worded it as if, put in the chat if you've never heard that. That's before. right. Put it in the chat if you have not so it Never seems like most, most people haven't, haven't been yeah. exposed to it. Maybe only one, maybe Robert's heard of it, but yeah. it's, it's a minority view. Yeah. Um, it's uncommon compared to the other three. Especially in kind of the traditions that we occupy. Yeah. And I think part of that, not to digress too much, but part of that is we as a people have a young history. Like we're a relatively, relative to the world, we're a young country. Yep. And so we don't have, typically, some of us do, but we don't have as long of a view of of history um oh yeah yeah. (laughs) ellen says thanks for the compliments but i have not heard of it i'm i uh i heard isaac's question wrong now futurism 
is the same idea in terms of the chronological succession that the visions in the book of Revelation are laid out according to their chronological ordering, but the vast majority of it, if not all of it after chapter three, yeah. is in the future still to to us. And this is the default view. Like most, I would say a big chunk of Christians have never heard of any other way of looking at the book besides this. Yeah. Now, would that be, would you say that's true just in American evangelicalism or even worldwide? I, I don't know. I, that's a good question. I don't know how it's represented worldwide. I would still say that, and I think you have idealism as the fourth. Yeah. That one may be second place to this one, but I, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and again, so, th and that's, they sound similar, but they're very different. Historicism is, they're in order, but it covers all of history from the first century to now. Futurism is like the letters to the churches in the first three chapters, that's for then, but the rest of it is still in our future until we arrive yeah. at that time. And man, up until then, um, none of this, is, none of what we've lived in the last 2000 years is covered in that. Yeah. And so that puts it all very, very far in John's future. Yeah, it's for that final generation to figure out and know, oh, these are the signs, so now we're, we're, we're moving along. And this is associated very closely with premillennial eschatology, which we've talked about in previous weeks, and dispensationalism. Um, and it's usually comes along with a view of like a literal thousand-year millennium and some of that stuff too. Not always, but it's kind of, those, those ideas all kind of lump together. Um, the next one is called preterism. And... Um, Preterism, this is where, you know, there's a lot of variety within preterism, but the basic idea is it puts the emphasis the other direction, that the fulfillment of most, and in some cases, all yeah. of the visions of Revelation have already happened. Yeah, it's like, how potent is your preterism? Yeah. How, how spicy is that pepper? A super spicy preterism is that everything happened within the first century. Nothing is left to be fulfilled. A kind of mild sort of... Taco Bell mild hot sauce version of it is a, you know, there's some stuff that was accomplished in the first century in the book of Revelation, but a lot of it's still yet to come. Yeah. And then there's everything in between. Yeah. And we call those, those folks partial preterists. So if you're a partial preterist, it means some percentage of it has already happened yeah. and some percentage of it, by the way, the, the mild Taco Bell hot sauce is the best tasting one. I, I like spicy stuff. I'm mean, don't get me wrong. I feel, I feel like I'm getting judged by both Isaac and Kevin right now. Kevin, can, I, can we go to Kevin for a reaction to that? Kevin's not a big Taco Bell eater, though. Gone the way of Dang. Balaam, gone the way of Balaam. Gone the way of Cora. I, I'm not, I love spicy food, but the flavors get worse the spicier the Taco Bell sauce gets. I feel like that's really important that we cover that tonight. Um, oh, in the chat, hey, this is, a, this is helpful. Say your favorite <laughs> Taco Bell hot sauce. <laughs> Jill Dowler says we sound hungry, and she is right, at least in my case. So preterism, full preterism, it's all happened in the past. Partial preterism, some of it has happened in the past. Now, would you say, I don't even know the answer to this, is, is full-blown preterism within orthodoxy? Yes. It seems like... Well, it gets tricky. It gets tricky. Because the second coming... There is a version... There are people who don't believe, and this is a very rare version of it, but there are versions of it where there is no second, definitive second coming. Like they would say the second company co coming happened completely in the first century. The in 70 AD. The temple, and now we've entered into a new era. And um, that's affiliated often with post-millennialism, with a certain brand of post-millennialism, right? It's, it's complicated because there's 
versions of things that overlap. But if you were to talk to those people in those groups, they'd be like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not that, or no, I'm not that either. Um, but there's plenty of full blown preterists who still believe in the second coming of, of Jesus in in the normal sense. But there are people who would just say, Hey, the Bible, after that, the Bible doesn't say it's open. We don't, we don't, we don't know. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. It's interesting. And again, there's, there's a huge range there. So um, preterism, it's, it's from a Latin word. It just means before, I think. But the idea is, is just a lot of the stuff has already happened. Um, and where you draw the line is, is where the kind of dividing lines are there. And then the fourth one is idealism. And idealism is a, a sort of mixed view. And it, um, <laughs> Joseph talking about preter, preter uh, yeah, I can't even read it. Um, idealism is the, the idea that the visions of Revelation um, symbolize the spiritual conflict that's kind of going on at all times during the church age yeah. between the first and second coming of Jesus. And so an idealist would say the sequence doesn't have to map on to any kind of chronological historical event. There's recapitulation. We're seeing, you know, patterns of history. This is mm-hmm. how the heavenlies are and how it interacts with the earthly. And it's, you know, some of it could be future, some of it could be past, but you're not supposed to really read a timeline into it at all. Is that, is that a pretty good description of that? Yeah, and it, it's, it's apocalyptic images that are meant to encourage Christians that there's times when evil will appear to be flourishing, but make no mistake about it, God's moving history towards its intended goal, and he will climactically, definitively, and finally defeat evil. So don't get caught up trying to discern all of this. Yeah. And in some ways, it's kind of the, you know, I don't want to say this in a negative way, but it's kind of the easy view in terms of anything that's that same, doesn't seem to fit. The accusations that some people will make against all millennialism will, is the same type of accusation for here because they're just going to say, everything's just a symbol with you. You don't, take the, you don't take the Bible literal. The Bible could say, don't do this. And you would be like, well, that's just symbolic, so I'm going right. to do it type of thing. Yeah. Obviously, that's not fair to the opposition, but those are the type of accusations that you get. Yeah, and it's interesting because those views often go together too, all millennialism and idealism. Yeah. Um, and they don't map on you know 100% to each of them, but... You know, so those are kind of the four views and the, you know, if this is the first time you've ever heard of any of this, the main thing to remember here is that it's not the only way to read it to assume that you're getting a chronology of events represented by visions. And it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not all necessarily still in the future. Um, a lot of people, the kind of the event that a lot of preterists, partial and full, lean on is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They say, this is where a lot of what the Revelation is talking about yeah. happens. Um, and part of that, this is, we're get, leaving the book of Revelation for a minute to another apocalyptic section in the New Testament, the Olivet Discourse, which is in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and some other places, um, is a great example of where this debate kind of plays out, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have some people, the Olivet Discourse, it's, it's too long to read the entire thing. It's come up a couple times, but it's when Jesus is asked by his disciples a, a complex question, and it makes the well, answer... Well, don't get to the question. Okay, let's, do, let's go backwards. Okay. So you'll be familiar with Jesus saying, there'll be wars and ru- rumors of wars, and many will claim to be the Christ, but yeah. know that the end is not yet. One will be taken and one will be left. Yes. You know, woe to those who are pregnant or nursing newborns yeah. during that time. So, And that, almost every generation, you can find someone saying, can't you tell it's the end of time? Can't you tell it's the end of days? Look around. Are there, are there wars and rumors of wars? Yes. Are there earthquakes and famines? Yes. And so th- that Olivet Discourse, this speech is used 
it's been used. I mean, as early as I could remember, yeah. people were saying we're in the end times because there's wars of rumors of war and r- rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. And even he, he does, you know, the, some astronomical, it, there's yeah. the moon, the stars falling from heaven, the moon turning to blood. That stuff is there too. Um, and you, like, if you just grab some of these sections, you would think you were reading the book of Revelation because Jesus is in that section, he's speaking in apocalyptic terms. That yeah. would have, we'll talk about this in a second, but that would have been familiar to a first century audience. Yeah, but in our day, you're you're going, oh my gosh, there are these things. And then right. you start looking up at the sky going, when's the moon going to turn to blood and when the stars are going to fall? Because it sure seems like this is all taking place. Um, but to get to where you were yeah. saying, so you might have always taken those sections of scripture to be referring to future events. Um, about the coming apocalypse and to be on guard when you see X, Y, Z occurring. However, that whole discourse begins with a question. And if you look at the question, it opens up an interpretation that may completely remove this from the future and put it directly in the past. Yeah. Man, what a setup. You can tell this guy's a teaching pastor. Dang. All right, here we go. I'm going to try to to hit that slow pitch out of the park just by reading the Bible. So we could go to any of them, but we'll look at Luke 21. Kevin, if you want to sh- throw up the Bible here, um, this is the context of all of that talk that sounds so much like the end of the world. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place. And he said, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name. Dotted, and then from there, what you're familiar all with. the familiar stuff starts. So how many of you immediately go, wait a second. The question he's answering is when will the temple be destroyed? Yeah. And the answer is, well, sort of. And if you go to all the accounts, they're all a little bit they're, they're I mean, they're not different in terms of contradicting each other, but you have here, Jesus says one day, not one stone will be left on another in the temple. And if you go to Israel today, they've preserved sections of piles of stones from the temple yeah. that were thrown down in 70 AD to show, you know, to bear witness to the destruction. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, that literally happened in the first century. Um, and there's even a possible historical reference to, it's it's when the Roman armies come and do that, it was under Vespasian, he orders Titus, and there's this possible reference of Titus actually telling, like, the soldiers throw every yeah. stone over. Don't there. leave one stone on top of another. Yeah, it's crazy. And in this Luke um, chapter, another uh, verse 20, it's Luke 21, verse 20, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Yeah. And you'll hear that used um, by people kind of talking about, you know, well, it's happening right now. The, the, we talked about that in the Doomsday Prophecy episode, yeah. that there are people who say, well, the enemies are surrounding Israel right now. But a preterist or a partial preterist would say, yeah, but the Roman army literally surrounded Jerusalem in 70 AD. Yeah, and they, I mean, it was, so So what you understand, it's not like surrounding in a, when we, when we look at that in the modern sense, we go, okay, look at Israel, and there's all these nations around them that don't like them, and that's certainly possible. That, yeah. That's a, a possible reading. But when you talked about the surrounding of a city in the ancient ancient world, you're talking about something called siege warfare. And siege warfare is you literally taking your troops and surrounding the entire city walls so that no food, water, or supplies could come in and that you would starve the people out so they would force, they'd be forced to surrender. And Rome, leading up to 70 AD, literally did this. They surrounded Jerusalem. They practiced siege warfare. It's one of the most horrific scenes in all of history. 
If people tried to escape because of this siege warfare, Rome would crucify people and put them facing back the people in Jerusalem. So it's, mm. it's a, I mean, this is what Rome did in siege warfare. It's horrific. It's brutal. Um, and so there's a whole way of looking at this where you're going, the armies surrounded Jerusalem. And guess who left? The people who remembered Jesus' words, which we have historical evidence for, Christians left Jerusalem when they said, started seeing out the house because when you see the army surround them, yeah. get out. So there's a whole world that takes the Olivet Discourse to be something that occurred in the first century, specifically 70 AD. And there's a whole world of crit right. where that's all yet to happen in the future. Yeah, because I, I was going to say, it sounds very clear in Luke 21 because they say, hey, when's this going to happen? But in Matthew 24, which is Matthew's telling of the same exact story, same stuff happens. Jesus says, you know, not one stone will be left upon another. But the question that the disciples ask in Matthew 24 is recorded as, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Yes. And then a lot of the same stuff follows. And so scholars debate and say, well, they didn't just ask, when's this going to happen? They also asked, when are you coming and when's the end of the age? Um, and then the reply from a preterist is, well, there, the end of the age, if you are a first century Jewish person, yeah. the destruction of the temple is the end of the world. It's the unraveling of the cosmos. Yeah, and it is the end of that age. Um, and it's the ushering in of the kingdom of God in the age to come. So the end of the age isn't the end of days upon earth as we, as right. in any sense, it's the end of the way things operated on earth up until the end of that age. So you got to define, what do you mean by end of this age? What is Jesus talking? What What is he talking about? When is he talking about? And so all of those will inform your interpretive grid. Yeah. And now if you, to, to give some, some credit to the idealist position, the idealist can look at the Olivet Discourse and say, well, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And this is a very reasonable interpretation that um, this Jesus is talking about this cataclysmic event that happens in 70 AD where the temple is destroyed and Rome defeats Israel. And he's using this concrete picture as a type or a foreshadow of the ultimate kind of end of the world that's still far in the future. And so it doesn't need the... And you could technically be a partial preterist and a futurist and still hold that what happened in 70 AD was sort of a, a prefiguring or a kind of a archetypical pattern of God's temple being attacked yeah. and destroyed. And that one day in their future, in the future, there might be an even greater one. Yeah. And just in case you don't think that's possible, one of the things Jesus says when he's describing the thing he's describing is that you'll see the abomination of the, that makes desolate standing yeah. in the place where he shouldn't be. So Jesus is invoking um, a story that we don't have time to get into, but something that happened in 160 something BC. So, you know, a couple hundred years before Jesus is talking, something happened where a leader named Antiochus Epiphanes came in and slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And that's the abomination that makes desolate. And so Jesus says, you'll see something like that happen. And so Jesus clearly is comfortable using one kind of apocalyptic image to, you know, describe something that's still in the future. So, um, again, we're not going to tell you which one's true because there's multiple Orthodox views. Um, but, and it's very different. I mean, some of the imagery there, you're going, oh, that totally happened already in the first century. Yeah. And then some of it's like, no way that happened. Yeah. Kind of so it's very difficult. And the question comes down to, and this is a, kind of a good segue into what we're going to talk about next where does the apocalyptic symbolism 
begin and end. So what is symbolic and part of the genre of apocalypse and what is meant to be read concretely? Because Jesus clearly means not one stone left on another. He means that literally. He's talking about the actual destruction of the actual temple. But what does it mean when stars fall from the heavens and stuff like that? So I want to jump from there to talk about what I think is probably the most kind of practically helpful lesson that we can learn um, in terms of reading Revelation and other apocalyptic literature a little bit more faithfully and a little more um, in a more aware way of how it works is to talk about the genre. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about genre a ton on Theology Thursday. If you've been watching Theology Thursday for a long time, you remember um, earlier in the pandemic, like one of the first series I did was on interpreting different genres of the Bible. Because the Bible is not like one book that's written in one style. It's a library of books with a ton of different styles. You've got poetry, letters, narrative stories, wisdom literature. Um, and one of those genres is apocalyptic. And you don't read them all the same as one another, and it's right? The, it is the most unfamiliar. Right. So we still have category, even though they did history different, even though they did poetry different, we still have categories for that. We really don't have apocalyptic literature as a modern genre. Yeah. And if anything, we could get confused because we have you know, post-apocalyptic novels and That's stuff, right. but it doesn't mean even, it doesn't, not just doesn't mean the same thing. It means something different and misleads us all the time. Yeah. Um, but you know, you don't read a letter the same way you read a history book. Yeah. If you were watching a modern apocalyptic movie or reading an apocalyptic book and it said a dead man rose from the grave and started running around screaming brains. Right. You're going to, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a zombie. It's a zombie. But if you're reading first century Jewish apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature and there's someone that comes out of the grave looking to devour human flesh, it might not be right. a zombie in that world. It might, yeah. it might be referring to something different. It could be referring to is, faith, uh, Israel in the Old Testament needing to be alive, but they have become dead. Or if Jesus is writing to a church, you're no longer alive, but you're dead. And it's like you eat sinful nature type, right. of type of thing. Yeah. And those, and, and it's all of our kind of ability to see images with familiarity and interpret them automatically. We can't do that as modern Western people with apocalyptic at all. Like we 100% have to learn the form. Yeah. Um, it would be like if you were going to, you know, take a course on Shakespearean sonnets, like I don't know how to read those. I don't understand how the form works. You would have to nope. teach me. Nope. Um, not and so one of them, you're not going to do it. No, <laughs> man, that really messes up my idea for the next series for theology Thursday. Nope. Now, so we touched on it already, but one of the most helpful things is that word apocalyptic. Um, we just said that like a modern movie or book that's apocalyptic, they're always about the end of the world. Yeah. That's what, I mean, that's literally what the apocalypse means in English. Mm -hmm. It's a transliteration of a Greek word, but we say it and we mean the end of the world, but that's not what the word means in Greek. Apocalypsis in Greek means unveiling or revealing. That's why the book's called The Revelation, because that's revelation is what apocalypse means. There's something you can't see. Um, in this case, it's in the spiritual realm, and you have the veil removed so mm -hmm. that you can see it. And so a, a common mistake right off the bat is assuming because of the word apocalyptic, just like we do the same thing with the word prophetic, yeah. that it means it's about the future, when yeah. it's not necessarily. It just means you're having something revealed. In apocalyptic literature... In the Bible, there's not a lot of it. There's the book of Revelation. There's sections of the Gospels like the Olivet Discourse. Um, there's some stuff in, uh, I'm trying to remember Daniel. which. Daniel. Daniel, Daniel. in fact, I think most scholars say is kind of the proto-form of yeah. Apocalypse. Because it doesn't really get popular until like Second Temple 
intertestamental, intertestamental period. Intertestamental period time. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's when it kind of crops up and it becomes quite popular. You have a bunch of a bunch of apocalyptic works that were really influential in the Jewish world at that time that aren't in the Bible. Things like um, the book of Enoch and stuff like that, that. They just started like taking Bible characters, like the apocalypse of Abraham, the apocalypse yeah. of Moses, the apocalypse of Batman. Yeah, the, <laughs> that's a great one. They started adding up the apocalypse. You take a character and then have this whole apocalyptic book based around yeah. this. There's unveiling. a Solomon one, I think. And they're not... Um, there is there is form and and kind of genre considerations that made it so that wasn't considered dishonest and you wouldn't necessarily think that you're actually reading something written by that person but you're taking that character and a lot of what he represents to create a story so daniel the you know we think of daniel and the lion's den and the the fiery furnace and all those stories but that's only the first half of the book the second half of daniel gets weird, weird. it's some Very of the weirdest weird. stuff in the whole bible and it's kind of like proto-apocalyptic literature. Um, most, again, most scholars say this is this is where you see it start is here. Um, and so, a couple of things to consider. The, I mean, the biggest thing to consider about apocalyptic genre is the use of symbols and symbolism. So everything in apocalyptic literature is symbolic of something else. I shouldn't say everything because that's kind of where the debate is. But people, colors, animals, names, yeah, substances. You get and then there's the three-headed dragon with a donkey head and ten horns coming out of its head. Yeah. And a diamond in its nose and a purple scarf because yeah. it was cold <laughs> yeah. type of thing. And all of those things represent something. And many of them would have been like immediately apparent to the, to the first century reader. But for us, it just sounds like fantastical, mm. bizarre imagery. So like, you know, you... you other than the purple scarf, because it was because pretty close up until that point. <laughs> up until that, that sounds like it could fit, and all of those things. So, like one, one a purple, a, a purple robe. Now it's now it's a clue to yeah, royalty. Yeah, now it means royalty. And if that beast had seven heads, and each head had a crown on it, yeah, what does that mean? That means the crown symbolizes power and authority. might, and the number seven means completeness. So this is a beast with complete power yeah. and authority. And I think that I think a beast with seven heads and seven crowns is is. Um, or I think the dragon has seven heads and seven crowns at the end of revelation. Um, but yeah, so those, so, you know, the number seven means something. The number 12 usually means we're talking about Israel in some sense because of the 12 tribes. Um, and so a lot of the debate in, on how to interpret things comes to like, where do you draw the line? Like what's a symbol yeah. and what's a concrete description of something that's really either happened or going to happen. And one of the misleading things is everyone will be like, Oh, well, you, you know, you just taking everything symbolically and not taking the Bible serious, or you just take the Bible ultra literally, um, and you need to know there's symbolism involved. And it's like, look, everybody takes parts, portions of the Bible symbolically, metaphorically, and literally. Yeah. It just is, what is your interpretive grid that lets you determine when is it safe to do that and yeah. when it's not safe to do that? Yeah. I mean, you would be a really bad reader if you didn't know how to interpret symbols. So like the example of in revelation it's talking about the dragon who comes out of the sky and the stars are falling now 90 per, probably 98 percent of people don't think there's going to be a literal space dragon space dragon that comes from outer space but as we've talked about there are people who think you'll man you'll know when it's time because that dragon's going to come down a dragon will come out of the sky and that's and that should be awesome i don't think it's going to happen probably not and i mean uh, 
it's it's hard in that section that's in Revelation 12. There's that's where you get the woman who's pregnant with a child who's going to rule the nations with a iron scepter. And it's like that anybody who knows the Old Testament knows that's Psalm 2. That's 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 the Davidic king, the the kind of anointed king of Israel. Um and the and again talking about numbers, that woman who's pregnant with that child has a crown made of 12 stars. Yeah. So most again, not I shouldn't say most, but a huge percentage of interpreters go, well, this woman represents Israel who is going to birth the Messiah. Yeah. Um, and even if you don't go there, you at least have to say, well, whatever you're going to say about that, it has to be informed by Psalm 2. It has to be informed by Israel, Psalm 2, the kinch, the iron rod, all of that it has yeah. to play in that. You can't just say, oh, there's there's going to be, the baby's going to come out. He's going to have a stick. Yeah. And he's going to have to battle How's he going to fight the dragon with a baby a with a stick? Yeah, type of thing. <laughs> And, and so, but there are people who would, because their hermeneutic says, take, do, avoid symbolism and metaphor at all costs yeah. that are forced into a, a strict interpretation yeah. like that. So you can think of it as a, like a continuum or a spectrum where on one side, there's like, everything is concretely true. Meaning a dragon is a dragon. And if it knocks a third of the stars out of the sky, it knocks a third of the stars out of the sky all the way to like a hyper all of this is symbolic. None of it has to happen literally. Yeah. Um, and you just have to find, you know, both of us, I, I would imagine would say we fall somewhere in the middle on that where we're trying to read the genre faithfully. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, we, we don't, we know how to do that in everyday life. When people say the sun rose this morning, there's a beautiful sunrise. We yeah. don't go, well, hold on a second. The yeah. sun didn't rise. The earth rotated until you could see the sun again. Yeah. Like we know what, we know how to do symbolism. Um, and it's, you know, it's, again, it's, where do you draw the line? Yeah. If someone says, man, it's raining cats and dogs, well, man, look for the signs, man. You know, it's the end when the yeah. dogs, the chihuahuas start dogs. falling from the sky, man, you know, it's the end of the world. My daughter loves those Amelia Bedelia books. Mm -hmm. You ever read those with your kids? No. Um, Amelia Bedelia is a, a lady who takes everything completely literally. Okay. So if someone says it's raining cats and dogs, uh, she's like, okay. oh my gosh, is it, that's what, it, that's what you made me think of. Ed and Dina Bless say maybe the Avengers is real because dragons are going to fall out of the sky. Um, that's a perfect, I mean, that's a, if you were watching or reading an Avengers comic book and then someone says there's a dragon that's going to come, you might expect a literal dragon. But if you're, you're reading a poetic work and it talks about the dragon in us all yeah, type of thing, there's, it's, it's a world of difference. And, and, and this is what's important. Because I, I really, really hate the caricature that says that if you read things symbolically, you're not being faithful, you know, that that's liberalism or you're not being faithful yeah. to the Bible. But we know that you can say in a poem that there is a dragon inside us all. It's not great poetry, but let's keep the example going. <laughs> There's a dragon inside us all. That is true mm -hmm. according to the form of how the genre works. It's not literally concretely true that there's an actual dragon inside of us, yeah. but the sentiment being expressed by that phrase is true. Um, you know, similarly, if you said, you know, my wife's a, a firecracker with her personality, mm -hmm. it's not true in the case of my wife, but you could, someone could say that, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, no one's going to be like, oh my gosh, you're, you married a firecracker. I hope nobody lights the fuse. It's going to, yeah. she'll be gone. Yeah. So again, it's everyone is using metaphor and symbolism and taking things literal all the time. So it's just an unfair tactic that both sides oftentimes do to one another. Yeah. And, and one example that I love to go to is um, when you talk about Daniel as kind of like the prototypical apocalyptic literature, in Daniel 7, you have this crazy vision that we don't have time to read all of, but 
where Daniel sees these beasts coming out of the ocean. And, um, you know, it's like some, they're just these fantastical kind of like amalgamations of different yeah. animals. And you could, if you were reading in a hyper concrete way, the first thing you would do is go like, oh my gosh, at some point in the future, you know, Godzilla like monsters will come out of the ocean. Mm -hmm. But at the end of that vision, an angel comes and says, Hey, you want me to tell you what that all means? And Daniel says, yeah. And the angel says, well, those four beasts that you saw are four different Kings who are going to rule on the earth. And he goes on to, you know, kind of explain. Um, and, and so the, the angel's interpretation of the vision is to say, these are symbolic, yeah. not concrete. So within, you know, the Bible interprets itself that way within yeah. the same chapter. And by the way, if you map like, like the series of four nations, starting with Babylon onto those beasts, it's crazy. The level of detail, yeah. you know, there's like a bear that's higher on one side than the other side raised up on one side because it's, it's Medo Persia and the Persians were more powerful than the Medes or the, um, the one that represents Greece is a, it's like a, it's a super fast. I think I wrote it down. It's a, it, Oh, it's a leopard cause it's a fast animal and it has wings. So it's extra fast because Alexander the great, you know, conquers the entire known world by the time he's in his thirties. Um, and it even says he has four heads, right? He has that line. It's probably fake falsely attributed to him, but it's, and then Alexander wept for he had nothing, nothing. more to conquer. Yeah. So good. <laughs> Dude, so many like 70s science fiction novels, like the chapter will start with that quote. You're yeah, like, it's Ooh. good. It's really good. I wonder if he's like, hey, tell everybody I cried. Just to, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> but that one's incredible because that, you know, that beast has four heads. And if you're a student of history, you know, when Alexander dies at a young age, yeah. his, he doesn't have a successor. His kingdom is split into four different competing dynasties around the known world. So um, again, all of that to say, these things can be fantastical and wild and symbolic and that it's not a question of symbolic versus true symbols yeah. can be true. Um, and then the symbol, which is then taken metaphorically could ultimately end up pointing back to something quite literal, like yeah. Alexander death and the four tetrarchs that followed. So yeah. it, can, it, it it's just an oversimplification to make it either or it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so again, kind of an immediate application point for you, if this is all new to you is when you're reading revelation, um, you know, don't start wildly deciding what is and isn't symbolic, but also don't think that, you know, when an eagle cr goes across the sky and calls out something that that means that that's literally going to happen at some point in the future. It might not. Um, and again, we talked about this last week, but, uh, we've been very informed by the left behind series, which took a 100% concrete hermeneutic, meaning if it's described, that's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's giant locust with scorpion tails and a space dragon and all of that kind of stuff. A giant angel with a sickle reaping the souls of a percentage of the earth and stuff. Um, so a famous example, we always have to get a little bit spicy and controversial, but one of the most famous symbols that gets talked about all the time and has for, for the last couple hundred years is the number of the beast. Kevin, you want to yeah. throw it up? Um, how many of you feel immediately uncomfortable just seeing that on the screen, first of all, because I kind of do, uh, being raised, being yeah, raised evangelical. There's all them scary movies about, remember like The Omen? Yeah. That, those movies where like the little kid turns out to be the anti, is that The Omen? Yeah. That says creepy, man. Didn't they release the remake of The Omen? There's been like on two. On like six? Uh, yeah, June they, they do six, stuff like that, like, man. It always unsettles me. And, I, and at, you know, as we're about to find out, I don't even think that's the way you're supposed to interpret this number. No, but, but it's, it's still <laughs> creepy. It's like, it has creepy cultural resonance. messing with that stuff, man. 
Um, so I don't like it. Throughout Christian history, especially evangelical Christianity in America, attempts have been made because there's an invitation in that section of the Bible where the number of the beasts is introduced. The author invites the reader to calculate the number of the beast. Yeah. And so there's a there's a straight up, you know, hey, try to figure this out being said. And it's almost like there's a wink at you, the reader, going like, can yeah. you figure this out? And that has made people really, really like fired up to try to figure out yeah. what the, what that's they about. They try to calculate it out. And so there have been some really famous attempts to do that. Um, one of the most famous, Isaac, you want to throw it up, Kevin, and Isaac can talk to us about. Let's see what we got. Let's see what's the first one on the list. We're going to go through a number of things that many people have thought represented 666. Now take a look at this. Ronald Wilson Reagan. You're saying, how can that be 666? Well, any of you guys see it already? Some of you probably do. Yeah, I'll give you some time to solve it. Hit the like button if you solved it. <laughs> yeah, once you solved it, go ahead and hit the like and the share button. Okay, so Ronald Wilson Reagan, uh, first word in his name has six letters, middle name has six letters, last name has six letters, 666. And, and see, this is where it gets interesting because depending upon your view of the end times, it will determine if you think he's a possible candidate. So if right. you have a very, there are some of you who, who um, you were brought up in Christian culture to think, man, the Antichrist is going to be super evil. He's going to take over the world. And so you're going like, Ronald Reagan, man, he seemed like a pretty nice guy, man. Yeah. But then some of you were brought up, no, everyone's going to love the Antichrist. Yeah, he's going to be the most Everyone likable. Is, no, one, no one's going to be able to detect who he was. In which case then, if you guys, people remember, how many, this is crazy, but how many states did Ronald Reagan win in his, when he ran again for the second of the electoral college. I don't know. We'll have to ask someone who was born then. Kevin, how many states? Kevin, you were, you were like 45 when Ronald Reagan won the second time. Do you remember? That was like the ultimate Now, Kevin setup knows the answer to this, Kevin. though, because we just <laughs> no, talked about it in a different no, set. No, you know I, was, I was very young. Very young. Yeah, symbolically. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Reagan, in his second term took 49 of the 50 states. Unbelievable. Or can you, I mean, in the political climate that we live in today, we can't even fathom no. that. He, no, and you had something called Reagan Democrats. Yes. Because he was so popular with the opposing 49, party. 49, the only state he didn't win was the state of his opposing candidate. It was his home state. So Which like, one was it? Do you remember? I don't Wisconsin. know. Wisconsin. Someone could, someone could Google it. It was somewhere around there, somewhere around there. Cause like I have the map in my head. I've, so, I looked at so it recently. The, the point is if the antichrist is supposed to be this kind of like loved uniter of the world, he's going to create a one world government yeah. where everyone loves him. This dude was a perfect, he's everyone liked him. Yeah. Yep. And then you add, and this is crazy because there were rumors about him being the antichrist for his whole presidency. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know if you know this, but when he retired, he moved to a place in yes. LA County and his address was six, six, six St. Cloud way for real. And there was such a like, people got so freaked out by it that he had the address changed to 667. There was rumors of his wife practicing occultism in the White House. Yeah. So there's just like a lot of stuff going around. And depending upon your hermeneutics, again, you can go, wow, 666, there it is. Now, to be fair to the other side of the political spectrum, here's another name that got a lot of attention as a possible antichrist. People did this the same thing. They took Barack's first m middle name, Hussein, last name Obama. And it doesn't quite work out to six letters per word, 
But if you add all the letters up, it's 18 divided by 3, 6, 6, 6. Which may sound like a stretch, but much greater stretches than that have been made for other people. Much greater <laughs> stretches have been made. There's sometimes we'd be like, actually, you know, um, this last name in the 1300s was spelt differently. It was a silent E here or something yeah. like that. And that's how you unlock the... Because it's all about, again, as you said, you prefaced it, calculate. You have to, you have to decode... Yeah the numbers. And so if you sound like you're being crazy, you just go, well, the author said, calculate the number of the beast. Minnesota, Adendina, bless. I think she's correcting where, uh, I said Wisconsin close enough. Oh, Minnesota. I thought where maybe where, um, where Ronald Reagan moved to after he finished because, uh, St. Cloud, which is the name of the street he lived on is a city in Minnesota. So I thought that might be what she was. Uh, this is important too. Uh, in the comment section, the U S isn't the whole world. Yeah. So there's also like, so when someone thinks Kobe Bryant's death, if right. you live in Los Angeles County, dude, Kobe Bryant dying was a big deal. Like if you watch the news, it was like a Messiah figure had yeah. died in, in, in Los Angeles. And so something could happen in American politics that's like seems huge, but in the big picture of things may not be it. So it's like, where's the center of gravity in the prophetic literature? As yeah. Well? And, and I think that's, you know, he's probably making that point about Reagan that exactly. sure he united Republicans and Democrats, but like, that's not the entire world. You didn't, yeah. you know, make it all work with every nation. So that's a great point too. Um, so yeah, people did it with Barack Obama. There were versions of it for George W. Bush, I recall as well, but here's, so before you go to the next one, Kevin, this next one, first of all, might be true. Um, and, and secondly, um, this one involves some, you got, some, you got Kevin's name. Up there? <laughs> no, no, this, it involves some real calculation because if you know your Hebrew alphabet, what's the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet? Wa, wa, which the transliterator, transliterated equivalent in English is a W. So if you put six 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 and then you replace those numbers with wah, Hebrew letters, wah, wah. what do you get, what do Kevin? Wa, wa, wa. WWW or World Wide Web. And that sure sounds like a global system that unites the entire world. Yeah, this one might be true. Uh, next, no, I'm just kidding. So the, when the, when the internet in the nineties, when this was brand new, there was legitimate yeah. fear about this. And again, I never want to be as arrogant. I mean, we're joking around, but I never want to be arrogant and be like, there might be some connection to, to that. I, I, I don't know, but you have to, again, we've talked about historical humility, knowing that everyone thought in their day, this was it. Right. And then looking back, you're going, ah, that, that, that probably wasn't, wasn't it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you have to look at everything it says about what the mark of the beast leads to and ask, like, does that comport with the internet? And, you know, it, I, I would, I argue no, but of course there are people who, who will say it is now kind of staying on the, the wah thing, the, you know, the, this w, is a much more likely candidate. This, this, so many of you, again, if you're a super nerd, you would know, this is what the wah symbol looks like in Hebrew. Oh, two. Did you go too far? Oh, it's, it's probably clear, huh? No. Well, we gave it away, but here's the deal. The wa symbol in Hebrew looks exactly like one of those three little scratches you see on the monster energy can. Yes. And so three wa's in a row is literally what you're looking at on that monster energy thing. And just in case that wasn't enough, do you remember what monster Energy's slogan was when they came out? I do remember it. If you were to turn that can around, it would say unleash the beast for real. And so they have a energy drink called Monster, which the, that's what you're looking out for, the monsters. Then there's three Waz, 666, and then they're like, unleash the beast. Yeah. Now, I don't think Monster Energy is the Antichrist. Um, 
person. I, mostly I don't. <laughs> Weren't you drinking one today for real? No, no. Not that. That's a I hibiscus drink, LaCroix. I drink a hibiscus sparkling water. I drink the... Um, I threw it away already. I had a I had a white rock star in you. That's the light side of the force. It's but disgusting. Now, what's probably happening with Monster, all joking aside, is they are probably capitalizing on that imagery on purpose for part of their kind of like marketing mystique. Right? I think people dabble with stuff because they think it's cool, but they dabble with stuff they shouldn't be dabbling with. Yeah. I wouldn't put Unleash the Beast on a product I made. Uh, now, we're, we're sort of, again, semi-joking about this kind of like letters into numbers thing, but there was a legitimate letter number system in the Hebrew world called gematria, where yeah. you could create a number out of a series of letters by substituting each of the Hebrew letters for the equivalent number. So, you yeah. know, a, if, if we were doing it in English, A would be the number one, B would be the number two, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so if we had time, we could look at uh, one of the genealogies at the beginning of the gospels is, is absolutely incredible for this because it has these series of names all leading to Jesus that are all the number 14. 14, 14, 14. Which is the n the number that calculates the name of David. In yeah, Hebrew. David is Dalit Wa Dalit, and it's DWD type of thing. And if you those numbers are 14. So it's Matthew's way of saying Jesus is the true David. Jesus is the true David. And he makes it very explicit and clear. Um, and so with that in mind, do you want to kind of walk us through the what is a really interesting and, and compelling case for a figure who might be the right yeah, candidate. The, the numerical value of, of the name Caesar Nero in the first century. You can throw that up, Kev. We was, got it on there. Uh, that That's Nero Kaiser. Yeah. And the Hebrew equivalent to that, if you take the letters in Hebrew, they would add up to 666 as well. Yeah, to 666. So it's not like, it's, si it's not 18. Yes, it's... Ca it's calculating, it's adding them up. And so there's a very strong case to be made that in the first century, you wrote an apocalyptic book, Revelation, to encourage Christians. And you don't want to say anything bad about Caesar because Caesar kills Christians. Right. And if you're caught with this document, you don't want to look like you have propaganda against the empire with you. So to, to hide that, rather than just coming out and saying all this negative stuff about Caesar, you use... Gematria, this numbering system, to let people know exactly who you're talking about. So there's a very strong argument to be made that C Caesar Nero is the 666. He is that the embodiment of that. Yeah, and, and um, we were talking about this before, before we went live, but um, there are even really old New Testament manuscript fragments. Yeah, I said that word right. Um, manuscript pieces that, that show... Um, the number not even being 666, but 616, yeah. um, which is a, a numerical value for a different spelling of the Greek version of Nero Caesar yeah. in the part of the world that that fragment is from, yeah. which is a really compelling case to say they're even contextualizing that same point for a different area, right? Or yeah. for a different language. Um, but here's the thing. That doesn't mean that 666 doesn't mean a future antichrist as well because Nero Caesar, depending on when you think revelation was, was written, he might not even be the guy in power anymore at that point. Yeah, right? There's, there's two revelation is typically thought to be written in the reign of two different Caesars, uh, Nero or Domitian. And you know, if you, even if you prove the case that revelation was written in the time of Domitian, it may just be the author's way of saying Caesar Nero 
is a type of 666. And so you have to watch out for a Nero-like leader. And that may be Domitian as well, or it may be some future leader. So this is why this stuff's so flexible, is even if you prove your case, it may not be... So think of it, um, how many jokers are there? Right, good point. How many jokers are there in the comic book world? And it's like, well, there's one, but there's also tons. Yeah. Because that joker is a figure that follows certain rules and behavioral patterns. Again, it's there's archetypical realities in that, and there's patterns that repeat itself. So Joker in this movie appears like this, and then he's played by a different actor or drawn different way in this Batman comic book. But there's still these patterns of behavior that when you see them, you go, this is Joker. Likewise, 666 could be something like that. It could be. And uh, Bible History Science says talks about um, the Nephilim. That yeah. same type of argument could go certainly, it's, it's, it could be used in the same way where. Because um, a Titan, a Nephilim in one interpretation is, you know, like almost a spawn of Satan in terms of their yes. rebellious angels, their, their People offspring. People who should be, uh, think of Psalm and the divine council. They are spiritual beings who are given authority to rule in a certain way, but then refuse to do so and become corrupted. And in a very similar way, you don't only see that in Genesis 6 and then with some of the passages referring to the kind of angelic Beni Elohim, sons of God surrounding the, the kind of courts of God. But then you can say, well, that's exactly, those, those are just the same pattern as, of behavior that we see with Nero and Domitian and Hitler and Stalin and whoever, fill in the blank. Yeah, and maybe there's a, depending on your interpretive grid, maybe there's a culminating Caesar of Caesar of Caesars at some point in our future still that is kind of, you know, yeah. the Antichrist. But I mean, the New Testament authors will talk about Antichrists. You yeah, know what I you, mean? And again, like you said, if you have a super pessimistic view of the way the world is going to end, you're expecting there to be an, like an Antichrist of Antichrist, like the super bad one. If you have, a, if you're an optimistic person and you think getting better post-millennialism. Yeah. The worst might you, be behind you us. Might, we might have already seen the worst Antichrist, or maybe not, but you're, you're not locked into that. So just understand there's a lot of flexibility even when you land on something. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, we could talk about, man, we're like almost out of time. Dang. We had a lot more we could have covered, too. I bet you I could find a way how to make Kevin Curzonabe's name spell. What's your middle name? Bubba. Kevin Bubba. Kevin B U B B A. Kevin's last name has 18 letters in it. That's true. <laughs> Kevin Kurzenabe. Now we were going to talk more um, about about some other interpretive stuff, but I, I always want to try to end at the hour. So um, uh, just one more kind of general statement that I want to that I always anytime I'm talking about Revelation, I, I tell people is if you want to have these symbols start to become intuitive to you, you have got to read the Old Testament. Yes, that's it. So they're not going to be intuitive to you as a modern Western person. They just won't. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff that, man, the original reader would have just picked it up automatically, especially a faithful Jewish reader in the first century. Um, but if you want to just have a gut-level response that's as close as possible to that, you just have to be a reader of the Old People Testament. People are always looking to detect future, present and future signs. And before you can even begin that process, you have to understand the Old Testament. And the good news about that is you won't just get better at understanding apocalyptic literature. You'll get better at reading your Bible. Absolutely. The Bible is always, always, always working with uh, an, a, a network of images and illusions and references from the Old Testament. So yeah. it'll, it'll open your eyes to so many, so and man, many. Things. The book of Genesis alone, 
is just this like lexicon for yeah. the rest of the Bible. Um, and I'm telling you just today when, when I was doing some prep for this, I was looking through revelation chapter 12 and going like, dude, every line yeah. has a reference to the old Testament that is not called out or specified and you would just miss it. Um, that's actually one of the interesting things I forget. I don't want to exaggerate. I don't know the exact number, but it's next to nothing when it comes to direct references in the book of Revelation in the Old Testament. Yeah. However, if you were to take a highlighter and talk about indirect and allusions and kind of little hyperlinks back to the, it's like just, just I, the, whole, the thing. whole thing. But he won't, the author of Revelation won't do what Paul does because of the form, because of the genre. So Paul will say, you know, as the prophet said, and then you get a nice little set apart quote with a, you know, with your little letter telling you it's from Isaiah. The author of Revelation will just say, no, the baby has an iron scepter yeah. and you have to know that Psalm too. Yeah, He's to not going to tell you. Yeah. Um, and so when, you know, when you see a beast coming out of the water, that water is supposed to say something to you. When you see in Revelation 21, that the sea is no more, that's supposed to say something to you. When there's a, you know, a tree growing and its leaves are healing the nations mm -hmm. alongside a river, you're supposed to be thinking Genesis one, Genesis two restoration of, of yeah. goodness. Um, and there's no shortcut to that, really. There's not. I no, mean, you got to do the work. Read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament again and again and again and again. And it'll enrich your Bible reading for the rest of your life. You'll never regret it. Yeah. And so I, I just, we can, we can close there. And I just want to tell you guys, we said, we hinted at it a lot, but um, the purpose of this book is to give Christians hope in the midst of suffering. It's not a book that should scare you. If it scares you, I'm, I feel comfortable saying if it scares you, you're reading it wrong to some extent. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't want to overstate that because of course there's, you know, there's stuff that's intense that could still come in the future. Yeah, the ending, but if you look at the, there might be parts in it that are scary, Yeah. but the, it's, it's not written so that you get to the end and you're left afraid. It's, yeah. it's written so that by the time you get to the end, you are waiting with anticipation saying, saying, come Lord Jesus. Yeah. It's not, no, no, yeah, Jesus, not, no, what it, no. not this. Stop you, it. You're you want saying, that. come Lord Jesus, come. Topple the powers, topple the empires. Jesus wins. That's the point of revelation. So it was meant to bring persecuted, suffering Christians hope. That's what it should still be doing today. Now, next week, we'll close on this. We're going to start tackling it kind of in response to, this is the end of this series, and in response to the Jude teaching series we just did at South Valley, um, we're going to take a look at some false doctrines because Jude warns us about false teachers and you know, being on the lookout for them and knowing what to look False for. Teach. We're going to be examining some of Kevin Curzonabe's sermons. Yeah, our first one is just an in-depth interview with Kevin. <laughs> but yeah, we'll be we'll be taking a look at false doctrines and false teachings. So if you have questions about that, teachers who you're concerned about or just general teachings, email me, put them in the comments. Um, and we look forward to seeing you next week to start off talking about the prosperity gospel. I'm doing so. it. Hit that jam. Yeah. Good night, everybody.